Our reading this morning is from Luke 11, verses 5 to 13. Then, teaching them more about prayer, he used this story. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight, wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me, the door is locked for the night and my family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. But I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. And so I tell you, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Hi folks, I do trust that you are all well. My name's Rick, and today we're continuing our study of Luke's Gospel, and in particular, Jesus' teaching on prayer. As you will recall, the last three weeks focused on the Lord's Prayer. Using it as a base, Luke, Kirsten and Dave drew on a range of materials, biblical and modern, to unpack its meaning. Today, we'll be returning to focus more particularly on what Luke's Jesus has to say. But this time, not about the content and priorities of our prayers, but our attitude. Now, since context is everything, it's important to take some time to regain our bearings. Luke is generally understood to be writing to non-Jewish Christians. That's to people who had for centuries stood on the outside of God's relationship to his people, Israel, looking in, as it were. In other words, to folks just like us. But for Luke, that had all now changed. No other gospel has such an emphasis on Jesus as saviour for all people. Luke uses salvation language nearly twice as often as Mark. It's a big word across the ancient world. Saviour was hopefully applied to Augustus Caesar for bringing an end to the Roman civil wars and peace to all the empire's subject peoples. But for Luke, the peace that really matters arises from reconciliation with God. And that's who Jesus is. More than any other gospel, for Luke, Jesus is himself the Lord, Israel's unique Yahweh among us. Now, whereas Matthew, writing for Jewish Christians, also presented Jesus as Israel's Davidic Messiah, Luke focuses on the way that same David gathered to himself all kinds of wrongins, outsiders, those who didn't belong, and especially non-Jews. This for Luke has now found its far greater fulfilment in Jesus. A non-Jew himself, he can barely contain his joy. This 
New salvation God has wrought in fulfilment of his ancient promises includes all people. And not just Gentiles, but sinners, the poor, the lowly, the sick and the lost. And not just male varieties thereof, it also means women. Have you noticed how often they appear in Luke? And shock horror, even Samaritans. Little wonder that Luke and Paul got on so well. Unsurprisingly, like Paul, Luke also has a tremendous interest in the spirit through whom all this is enacted and appropriated. More than any other gospel, the spirit saturates the events of Jesus' birth and his ministry. But is this for Jesus only? Does it all end with him? Not at all. Luke not only wants to show that what Jesus did was entirely and utterly God's work, it is also the way forward for all of his followers, and hence his second volume, The Acts of the Apostles. Following Jesus and continuing his work is impossible apart from a transformed and empowered life through the Spirit. It is no surprise then that Luke, at every crucial moment in Jesus' life and ministry, uniquely points out over and again that Jesus was praying. Spirit and prayer go together. And if for Jesus, then surely also for us. Now do notice this link because it's going to be crucial for our text this morning. Finally, while Luke never downplays the costliness of following Jesus, he even more celebrates the inexpressible joy and abundant praise that comes with repentance and reliance on a staggeringly good God's mercy. And this too comes to the fore in our text. So in sum, Jesus is Lord and the Davidic Saviour of all peoples who joyfully experience God's mercy through the Holy Spirit in prayer. These emphases are picked up in Luke's larger and uniquely extended travel narrative to which our passage belongs. He takes Mark's two and a half chapters on cross-bearing discipleship, that's eight through 10, and massively expands them with his own material to almost 10. That's from 951 to 1927. It's here that we find some of Luke's most famous narrative parables, the prodigal son, the unjust steward, and of course, the good Samaritan. Nine of them in all, and all unique to Luke. His concern is with the whole gamut of Jesus' teaching on discipleship and hence our text on prayer. But even so, time and again, he continues to note that it's those from the wrong side of the tracks who make it in. Like the mixed multitude coming up with Israel in the first Exodus, Luke keeps emphasising that this really is for all people. No one is excluded. But that also means that these demands of discipleship are also for everyone. No one is exempt. This all everyone will also be important for us. And it's in this setting that we find Luke's version not only of the Lord's Prayer, what we should pray, but also how we should pray. This is what discipleship consists of for us all in all our diversity. But we have a problem. Most of us are so used to reading Paul that we have a tough time dealing with narrative. As a result, we often tend to treat each section, to use one male scholar's description, as isolated pearls on a string. We move from one story to the next, pretty much ignoring those on either side. But of course, mere males. 
As anyone knows, pearls are never just strung together. They are very carefully arranged. And that's the case here. It's not just Luke's great themes that tie his biography of Jesus together. It's the very careful way he's arranged his material. And that brings us to our text, chapter 11, verses 5 through 13. Its context begins back at the beginning of chapter 10. Jesus has just sent out the 72 to proclaim the near coming of the kingdom of God, and they have returned amazed, rejoicing, there's that reference to joy again, because even the demons submit to them. But no, says Jesus, be joyful about the right thing. Rejoice instead that your names are written in heaven. And then he himself rejoices in the spirit that the Father, the same Father that begins the Lord's Prayer and who delights to give us the good gift of the Holy Spirit, he rejoices that this Father, while hiding these things from the wise and intelligent, has revealed them to little children, to those on the outside. And look around this morning. How many of us are among the great and the mighty insiders? And would you guess it? It's exactly a wise and intelligent inside lawyer and expert in the revealed law of Moses who next appears. And he asks, not surprisingly given the references to the kingdom of God coming near and to names being written in heaven, what he must do to inherit eternal life. They are, after all, one and the same. Jesus then asks him what he sees written. Hear that language being picked up? in the law. Now his reply is bang on, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength and all your mind, and to love your neighbour as yourself. But as Jesus had just declared, the great irony is that while the wise lawyer answers correctly, he cannot see his need for God's mercy. Instead, he seeks to justify himself by asking, well, who is my neighbour? Now, what Luke does here is absolutely brilliant. The next two stories, the first one being about two men, the self-justifying Jewish lawyer and the detested outsider Samaritan, and the second about two Jewish peasant women, Martha and Mary, pick up exactly on the lawyer's correct two-part answer. The first addresses what it means to love one's neighbour and the second, what it means to love God. The fact that the lawyer cannot even bring himself to defile his lips with the word Samaritan shows how blind his pseudo-wisdom has made him. He knows God's truth, but not God's power. In the second story, Martha's complaint about Mary, she's not helping me, is effectively that Mary is not being her neighbour. But Jesus, amazingly, he responds very differently. In this case, listening to him is what takes priority, and Mary has chosen the better part. Now, it's important to realise that this is not that loving one's neighbour doesn't matter. The point is, this will only really happen if we put listening to Jesus, the Lord himself among us, first. It's exactly the order of the lawyer's correct response, even if he couldn't see what it meant. It's not the critical race theory, racism, being work, 
haven't seen a problem. Instead, it's the fruit of their self-reliant, superior and self-justifying wisdom. A censorious judgment and the annihilation of an ever-increasing host of sinners. Well, you can see where this is going. In believing Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom, his followers' names are now written in heaven, but they need to realise that this eternal life means the end of all division on the base of race or other superiorities. We no longer define each other as white, black or yellow or as wise and learned over against the masses. For us, as followers of Jesus, there is only neighbour, and that means whoever is near a hand and needs our help. And the only way this can happen is by loving Jesus as Lord with all our hearts, minds, souls, or our life, if you like, and strength. But how is this to happen? Well, the very next thing we get is Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. I think Luke is telling us that this is the better part. This is how the kingdom comes near. This is what it means to have one's name written in heaven. And it will not be taken from any of those who, like Mary, sit at his feet. And as Dave so rightly pointed out last week, this better part defining prayer is communal. Dear friends, there's no place in the kingdom for Lone Ranger, I did it my way, pseudo followers of Jesus. Loving our neighbour and loving the Lord with all of heart, soul, mind and strength translates first into loving our brothers and sisters and not forsaking our gathering together. Casual, tepid attendance is not an option. Now, I love this place and I love this community. Living Waters was indeed just that for us when Katie and I first came here those five or six years past. And thank you all for such a healing welcome. But this is where we put those two great commandments of loving God and our neighbour as ourselves into practice. And can I suggest it's why we wear masks even if we are unpersuaded. Why? Because it's not about me, it's about us. I think this is also why Luke omits so much from Matthew's Lord's Prayer. It's about half its length. For example, why would anyone omit the our from Matthew's Our Father? I think our lawyer helps us understand. His problem was that our had become proprietary such that God was Father only to his definition of us. Jesus' prayer reminds us that God is Father to whomever he chooses, and that now includes all kinds of folks. Similarly, we are not told to pray, may your kingdom come soon. And you have to forgive me here, but it's hard not to get frustrated with the way some Bible translators feel free to make adjustments. Excuse me, these are the words of Jesus. Stop fiddling with them. Yes, of course we are to pray that God's holy kingdom comes. But he doesn't say soon. As Jesus reminded his disciples at the beginning of Acts, the timing is not our business. I wonder why it is that we get so fussed about end times. Are we missing the kingdom for our timing? Instead, this is all about the Father's will. And hence the rest of the prayer drives home our complete dependence on him for our daily bread 
for our forgiveness and especially in the light of our frailty in the face of testing. So that's a lot of stuff to get your head around, but it really does provide the absolutely necessary context, right? This is really serious stuff to when Luke, Jesus begins to talk about what our attitude should be like in praying this prayer. How should we come to praying the Lord's Prayer? Jesus' response consists of three small parts, verses 5 through 8, 9 through 10, and 11 through 13. The first is this oddly bizarre story about what no friend would ever do. The second, the centerpiece, emphasizes that since God is far more reliable than any friend, we can, all of us, extravagantly venture forth with him in asking, seeking, and knocking. And the third, that God's unique goodness as Father extends even to giving the Holy Spirit to anyone who asks him. Now, in the ancient world, hospitality was central. Providing for a newly arrived friend impacted the honour of everyone in the village. And since there were no all-night corner stores, all were expected to help, that is, to be neighbours. That sound familiar? But Jesus' story has an odd twist. This is not about village neighbourliness. This is about friendship. The friend who arrives unexpectedly out of ours and the friend who is put upon to help. And do note, this is not about trivial convenience and nor is the Lord's Prayer. It's a serious matter of genuinely dependent need in caring for a friend. Now, on a quick read, it seems that Jesus' parable is about the shameless persistence of the friend seeking help. But there are some problems with this view. A word to the wise, be wary of quick reads. This is the word of God. It requires due diligence and careful attention. The first thing is that the word often translated persistence does not, in fact, mean that. Uh, forgive me, but this is one of the reasons why over 20 years or more of teaching, I've always insisted to my students that if they want to teach God's people, they need to learn the original languages. After all, those of us who teach can expect a harsher judgment. This work is far too important not to take it with all the seriousness and all the effort we can muster. And when you do that, you realise that nowhere in our literature does this word have this meaning. Instead, it is entirely negative. It describes the person who acts with complete disregard to social norms. The impertinent, shameless person whose sole concern is themselves and their agenda. Not unlike, I suppose, Oscar Wilde. This leads some folks to think that Jesus is, is stressing the importance of shameless prayer in the sense of not being afraid to ignore conventions. And after all, it is late at night and his groggy, groggy friend is not best pleased. But if that's true, why is the emphasis instead on the respondent? The friend's initial asking merely sets the stage. The focus is all on the respondent's annoyance and refusal. And these are not minor issues. Village streets were not safe at night and unlocking a door would take effort and likely awaken the entire house, if not the neighbours as well. Unlike us, peasant families all shared the same bed. Even in medieval days, there were strict rules about not fidgeting lest one disturb others and especially the children. And we all know how hard it is to get them to get back to sleep. 
So neither the request nor its impact is trivial. But even so, he has already refused. That is, the shameless midnight interruption by his friend was not, in fact, successful. In fact, it was so unsuccessful that our respondent refuses even to acknowledge him as friend. He's clearly not happy. Well, that being the case, I don't think it can be about the shameless request. Something else is going on. Well, read the text. It's always a really good idea to read the text. While hospitality was indeed a big deal in the ancient Near East and still is, it's not actually mentioned anywhere. Instead, the issue is about friendship. See how often it's mentioned? The friend who arrives, the friend who has to provide and is now the botherer, and the friend who is the botheree, if that's the right word. Of course, friendship is an even bigger deal. One of the expectations and obligations inherent in this highest level of personal friendship was that one could indeed make such demands of one's friends and expect them to be met. The friend's very late arrival and his friend's midnight request are all part and parcel of what friendship means. That's why nothing is implied as to inappropriateness, inappropriateness and even less persistence. It's why the initial request is so simple and straightforward. This is what friends do. And that's also why the story is so very, very odd. Leaving aside the demands of hospitality, which themselves should have resulted in the immediate provision of the loaned loaves, no friend would ever dream of responding in such a way. And that's the point of Jesus' question. No one would have a friend who reacted like this. But even so, in this utterly unimaginable situation, there is something even more weighty in play. The honour and the reputation of the friend who is asked. If he won't do it for friendship, come on, get out of here. He will do it for the sake of his own honour and reputation. If he doesn't want the whole village to know the very next morning what he's done, and his name will become pig manure, and we are, after all, talking about Jews, he needs to be careful how he responds. Jesus' point is simple and profound. How much more with God? We can, and moreover, we should come to him in this way as friends, because at bottom is not who we are in one sense, but his reputation his honour and his holiness. That's what's at stake. Oh, and what did Jesus teach us to pray? Father, may your name be held as holy. What if God's response to our prayers is finally a matter of his upholding his holiness? Remember the series on Psalms we did the end of last year? Remember David's prayer in Psalm 22? In the midst of his profound sense of abandonment, where did David begin? But you are holy. And for those of you who know Israel's history, you'll immediately remember that it was a holy God's honour to which Moses appealed after the golden calf incident. And do note, God relented. 
It's on this basis that Jesus goes on to say, I say to you, and yes, this is the Lord Jesus speaking. It's his authority. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. And this applies to everyone. There's Luke's emphasis again on Jesus being the saviour and the Lord of all people. As one scholar puts it, this is all about the language of venturing, of stepping out, of engaging with God. The Greek tenses are in fact important here since they stress that this venturing based on God's holiness should be our habitual stance in prayer, not occasional. It should be the manner of the way in which we relate to God in prayer. Now, while that surely has implications for our own holiness, that's not the issue here. Not only so, but some of us are surely wondering what about unanswered prayer? And it's a great question, and there are several places that speak to it, if only in part, but it's Jesus who's setting the agenda here, not us or our questions. And he apparently does not want us to be distracted from keeping the main thing the main thing. What we can say is that from the context, it is clear that Jesus is not speaking about presumptive requests. Oh, since God is my father, he should do what conveniences me. No, 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 no. This is about his name being holyized, his kingdom coming, and my dependence on daily bread, forgiveness, and admission of my frailty in the face of the test. It's about my being neighbor and moreover, a friend. So then, even with these essential caveats, Jesus himself still invites us into an extravagant venturing with God. And in some ways, that's exactly what we see in the book of Acts, a profoundly trusting continuation of Jesus' work through this kind of prayer and the Spirit. And it's precisely to the Spirit that Jesus turns next. Picking up on the idea of Father, yep, you picked it up, that's the Lord's Prayer again. He contrasts us humans with God. Now, his calling us evil is not a denunciation. It's simply a recognition of the great gulf that exists between who we are and the holiness of the truly good and indeed the only good Father. Appealing to his hearer's daily present life, he captures that tender moment when a child asks Daddy, for some special treat, such as a fish or an egg. Which of you, in spite of your being evil so far from who God is, would instead give a snake or a scorpion? And again, this is an utterly bizarre and even repulsive idea. Of course not. Even we know how to give good gifts. Well then, says Jesus, how much more will the heavenly Father, and do notice this, Having omitted heaven from the Lord's Prayer, this is the first time it appears. How much more will this heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If we care about heaven, folks, we should care about the Holy Spirit. What's Luke telling us? He's already pointed out the link between the Spirit and prayer for Jesus. He's noted that the Spirit infused everything Jesus did and added over and over again that at every crucial point in Jesus' ministry, he was praying. It seems clear to me that he's saying, as it was with Jesus our Master, it should so also be with us, his disciples. The climax of the better thing that Mary chose and of the Lord's Prayer 
is a holy and good God's fatherly delight to give the Holy Spirit to those who habitually asking, seeking, and knocking, venture forth with him in his coming kingdom. Not in any way as a guilt trip, much less as a new legalism, but as an invitation to life and a freely given gift. May I ask, is this what characterises our venturing forth with God? When was the last time we asked, sought, and knocked for the Holy Spirit? God bless us all in Jesus' strong name. Amen.